Greetings, Alpha Seekers. Uh, this is the Alpha's next uh, podcast. And uh, I, I guess I should have waited a little longer to do this post-election when I did. But now I look like I'm a great prognosticator. So uh, I basically called it yesterday. And didn't take a genius to do that, obviously. But... Um, it is going to be uh, Biden, it looks like, absent a successful challenge or recount or what have you, which is uh, unlikely in my opinion. So that gets you to some key dates in December, uh, which you can find on CNN if you're a political junkie. And... Uh, Assuming all that goes according to the expectation at this point, then the next big date, I think it's January 2nd, early in January, you've got these two Georgia runoffs, and those are probably the most significant Senate uh, elections since, uh, I forget his name, Scott, whatever, won in Massachusetts in, 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 the, in the middle of a recess in a special election and basically uh, screwed up the Democrats' uh, plans to retweak the uh, the Affordable Care Act. You know, nobody could have imagined the Republican would win in Massachusetts, but uh, he did. And that was like, oh my God, now what? So they had to basically pass a bill that, you know, Nancy Pelosi, I remember saying... You know, and this was in 2010, she said, in order to read the bill, you have to pass it. Which, you know, I think is, uh, we those of us in Illinois are very familiar with that sort of thing. Uh, but anyway, uh, here we go. You know, if, if you've got the uh, slimmest of majorities in the Senate based on the partisanship we've got these days, they will probably change the rules in the Senate so that they can do anything they want. And that will really accelerate the pace of change. That will enable much of the platform, as much as they want of the platform, which is very, very progressive and radical, if you're not a progressive, to be rammed through with the narrowest of majorities. Now, that would set you up, perhaps, for, I don't know how the 2022 Senate map looks, but uh, that would set you up for a midterm uh, reactionary red wave that would put a put the brakes on it for the last two years of the term. Uh, but you can get a lot done in two years. Now, you can also repeal a lot of that stuff, but... You know, we saw with Obamacare, Affordable Care Act, it's a lot hard, a lot easier to get stuff passed than it is to uh, undo it. And the Republicans were never able to undo Obamacare, and I don't think they ever will be. I, I think that we're definitely moving toward a Medicare for All environment, which means a lot of uh, downgrading of the, of the healthcare workforce. I think you're already seeing that with nurse practitioners and physician assistants getting a lot more independent uh, practice rights. So you're going to 
if if the trends continue, you're going to see physicians in primary care pretty much be replaced by NPs and PAs because they're less expensive. So there there is, I would argue, a quality trade off there. But you know, I think that's the direction things go. So you know, in my view, we're going down this socialist road, and it's just a question of you know. How fast? Certainly by mid-century, I think America will be a socialist country uh, along the lines of the Denmark's and the OECD Western European models. Uh, And Denmark will argue it's not a socialist country. It's a capitalist country with a very robust safety net. And, you know, uh, I, I guess you can make that point. And if that's the direction it ends up in, where you still have a free market on top of a very robust safety net that's paid primarily with uh, debt, frankly, fiat currency, then that may not be the worst thing in the world. I mean, the Danish are able to do it. I think the Danes are in the euro. So I guess they just have high rates. So, you know, it's not the end of the world, but it certainly changes the world. So, but the pace of change for those of us in a certain age bracket where, you know, we don't worry too much about the middle of the century, uh, especially if we don't have kids. The pace of change is what's really important. The direction is pretty clear. The The pace is what's at issue. And that Georgia election is going to be enormous. Just, it, I don't think you can overestimate the importance of those two elections. And I think if the Republicans just win one of them, then they've got their... Uh, slim, albeit, but uh, nonetheless a majority. If the Democrats sweep in Georgia, and you can imagine there's going to be an incredible amount of money spent on this, and a complete focus by both parties on one state, I mean, that's going to be an amazing election. Um, I wish I owned a local TV station in Atlanta, but, uh, you know, that's that's going to tip the, the whole playing field, either to the left or to the right, for, for two straight years. And uh, I think if the Republicans win just one of them, then they'll be okay. But if the if they lose both, then the, the Democrats will have a majority, because I think it then ends up 50-50. And, of course, Kamala Harris will be the deciding vote, and we know how that'll go. So... That's the dynamic at work here. So, enough about elections. On to other observations from me listening to CNBC so you don't have to. Um, Let's see. Now, there was a guy named Ed Yardini uh, on CNBC... And he is looking at a 3,800 uh, S&P in 21, year-end 21, and a 3,520. I think that you might get to that 3,500, yeah, for sure. Uh, You might even get up to 3,600 if the market feels that Senate race. And, And, you know, the market has not really grasped, I don't think, the subtleties of this election yet. Uh, Steve Grasso said that Friday on Fast Money, and I think that's probably right. 
So on Monday, when people have had time to read their paper, hopefully, and uh, you know watch their TV, they may have figured out that the key here is the Senate, and the key to the Senate is Georgia. So uh, I did not see any riots reported over the weekend. So if there are riots over this latest police-involved shooting, that it's a little early, but that I think could push the in favor of the GOP. You know, uh, the law and order thing is a little more important when when your house is burning down and you know the local grocery store is getting that five finger discount. Uh, but <clears throat> we'll see what happens. So. What will drive the market from here on is the coronavirus, according to Yardini, and whether or not we have to do shutdowns. Now, at the moment, that's a state-by-state thing. Once Biden gets in, it'll probably remain a state-by-state thing because something that you would never know by listening to the, the critics of the Trump administration or the proponents of Biden, the president cannot order states to do much of anything. So, you know, you can't order the states to shut down. And honestly, you know, even if you could, you probably shouldn't because if you look at a map, most of the uh, the hotspots are, you can almost correlate it with temperature because when it gets cold, people go inside. And when they go inside, they spread the virus and then they get sick. So, uh, I don't see big, uh, big problems on the on the East Coast, probably because so many people there already have been infected with it and either you know gotten sick and died, or gotten sick and recovered, or not gotten sick at all because of the bizarre uh, difference in effects uh, based on what who knows what genetics or whatever, blood type, gender, age, you know pre-existings. So um, what he also says then is, uh, you know, shutdowns are somewhat dependent on political outcomes, but not entirely, and certainly not the presidential level, in my opinion. And uh, it won't be until February, he says, that things could change. You know, once a new administration takes hold, uh, but he foresees zero interest rates for the foreseeable future. So it's still a Tina thing in terms of the market. There is no alternative. Uh, you've got a lot of uh, inflation trades, you know, gold, silver, getting momentum, uh, Bitcoin, which I am, st- I'm, I am not a fan of any of these things, but I will say that the... You know, the momentum trade based on the psychology of the traders, everybody thinks there's going to be inflation. So because everybody thinks that everybody's hedging, I don't. But, you know, I know many smarter people than me who think there will be inflation uh, once the velocity of money picks up and uh, there's something to spend it on. So... There'll be suppose the theory goes that there'll be a a real bubble of demand and the supply chain is challenged, so that will bid up pricing. I you know who knows. I take that more seriously than I did a month ago, uh, 
based on the teachings of Dr. Stanley Feldman, uh, who is the president of Axiom Valuation Solutions, but uh, and who used to work at the Fed and who I've become uh, an acolyte of, if you will. But um, that's that's what people are seeing. So if you want to play that gold or silver or Bitcoin momentum trade, um, I can't talk you out of that because the momentum is based on people's psychology. But I'm not going to be there with you. I don't know that I'd short it, but you know, I think at some point that's going to come revert back to the mean. It's hard for me to believe that Bitcoin is worth almost twice as much today as it was yesterday because honestly, I don't really think it's worth anything. But there are some serious people who are putting serious money into it. So, you know, there's more of a bid on it. Um, according to Yardini, tech is not a bubble. So uh, you can stay with tech. And uh, that's what he has to say. I don't disagree with any of that particularly. All right, so BlackRock, Katie Moore was in, and uh, she said, trying to read my own handwriting, which is not easy. She said, I like this metaphor, dance with the Fed until the music stops. And she does not think that the uh, music is going to stop. So... uh, they have a very high conviction and a long duration position uh, based on low rates. And uh, that I agree with completely. I think we're going to have lower for longer rates. And I think that dampens the inflation pressure for sure. Uh, here's Alethea Young from Cantor. And I. This is a little older. It's from 1027. But she is a very, very good uh, biotech analyst and pharma analyst. So she is very uh, pounded on the table for Gilead, G-I-L-D, and Regeneron, R-E-G-N. She's got a 690 target on Regeneron. And I don't know, frankly, what it's trading today. Um, So... One of the ways you can play that, and this is how we've been starting to play our biotech portfolio, because the timeline keeps dragging on and approvals for these viruses, I'm thinking, or for these vaccines, I'm thinking that, you know, now we got the election question out of the way. And frankly, what does it matter if they approve it on October 30th or November 4th or 5th, which they haven't yet, but at least that takes the political appearance uh, of playing politics with approvals out. So I actually think that argues in favor of an emergency use authorization for either Moderna or BioNTech, Pfizer. But uh, the other problem, which I think I've talked about, is that, well, this also is favorable because there's been an issue with not having enough people in the trials uh, be challenged by the virus. So... Uh, now that we've got a surge, theoretically, at least in some areas, you're going to have more uh, infections, and that actually is bullish for the trials and bullish for the EUA and bullish for the stocks. So, But because of this continual timeline slipping, which is not totally uncommon in 
biotech, but with this one, you figured they were going to, you know, they were going to take some, I don't know what you would call it, shortcuts. But um, we've been playing it with what's called a long, deep in the money call. So if the stock is trading at 70, we buy a, a 60 call. And that's the equivalent of like 70% of the share price. But you can get that position for like 30% of the price of the share. So with it gives you some degree of leverage. It gives you about a two or three to one leverage. And we've been doing that and then uh, also selling some puts. So that cuts the price of the trade. And, you know, it's a double whammy because you're going to get burned on both of those trades if the thing collapses. But we do not think the collapse of these stocks is possible, you know. It's going to get approved. We don't know when, but it's going to get approved. So uh, that's uh, if you keep on buying calls and they expire out of the money, that becomes a pretty expensive hobby. So um, we're, we've kind of shifted to the deep in the money call, which means our upside isn't as big, unfortunately, but you know the downside is much lower if you assume that a, a total collapse of the stock is a never event. So that's that. Uh, let's see. IDEX Labs is a stock that you might want to take a look at. Uh, my note is cryptic, but uh, it's a veterinary stock. And I think that this whole veterinary trade is bullish as hell because everybody went out and bought a friend. You know, it's the old uh, Jack Filani, if you want a friend in Washington, buy a dog. So everybody went out and bought a dog or a cat or whatever. So, you know, these cats and dogs stick around for years. I mean, Louie, my dog, I think he's got a 20-year lifespan. So 20 years of Mr. Louie, you know, I've got the scars. He's like a cute little rattlesnake. But, you know, when you do an impulse buy of a dog, man, you're in for 10 to 20. You know, it's like a jail sentence. So um, that creates a very uh, large lifetime value for pet companies. So that's a good reason. Now, here's a thought that occurred to me, which is somewhat troubling. I asked Jim Cramer this question. And as far as I know, he has not answered it. I, you know, he reads his Twitter feed. I can tell because he's got th he's got thin skin like me, you know. So when people criticize him, he gets upset. But uh, he's a narcissistically vulnerable personality, like myself. So uh, I asked Kramer in a tweet, "Why hasn't Pfizer bought BioNTech?" And that is a troubling question to me because if they really believe that this thing's a winner, the time to buy them would be before the VAX is approved, not after. Now, there may be some reason, you know, it's a German company, so maybe they can't buy it. I don't know. But it's an interesting question. If anybody has the answer to that, let me know. You can reach me at 708-334-8414 or terrynugentatoutlook.com. So... Uh, speaking of Terry Nugent and Outlook.com, we're also building our newsletter list. I only have one listener who's thank you listener, uh, but I would prefer to send this out to more than one person. So if you want the newsletter, communicate with me. Let me know the best email address. 
I will hopefully be compiling that mailing list today. So, and I think the newsletter is going to just be one shot. I can't stand these newsletters that have like 14 articles and you look at it and you're like, I don't have time for that. So I think we're just going to have like one article a day if we do it every day. So, or even if we do it every week or month, I, I just have grown tired of these, like Seeking Alpha has 200 links and I'm like, you know what? I got a life. Um, not much of one, but I have one. So here's another thing from BlackRock. Uh, very prescient. This is from 1030. As you know, I've been off the air for a while. My election quiet period. Risk and post-election. Uh, earnings up. Election resolved, which takes off the uncertainty. And corona less severe than feared. Now, that last one I don't know about. Because... In some areas, at least, the hospitals are filling up again. But I think we're a lot better at dealing with this now than we were in March. Because in March, nobody knew what it was or how to deal with it. You know, you had vents on, which were counterproductive. Uh, lots of casualties among the healthcare professional team. I think we're in better shape now to deal with it than we were then. And you know what? It's like you get used to anything. So I think, generally speaking, we're in better shape <clears throat> to deal with it than we were the last time. So uh, here's a article from I think the Tribune. Yeah, well, it's you know the Tribune is just a compilation. It's like a anthology of what other people write these days because they don't have any more reporters because they can't afford them. Um, so this is actually from a guy named Eric D. Lawrence, Detroit Free Press, reporting on the CEO of Fiat Chrysler, which is like Chrysler mostly, who says that COVID-19 is the biggest risk to the auto industry and is calling on governments to spend pandemic recovery dollars to boost electric vehicles and other times, other types of alternative, uh, alternatively powered cars like hydrogen, I guess, in order to meet climate goals, <clears throat> which makes sense. His name is Mike Manley, who is president of the European Automobile Manufacturers Association. And car sales in Europe are forecast to drop 25%. Production there down 4 million vehicles. Uh, COVID, clearly biggest risk ever to the auto industry. Now, in, Chicago, in, in the U.S., as I understand it, uh, the car companies are booming because people are hopping off of public trans and they're moving to the suburbs and they need cars. But, uh, in fact, we've got inventory shortages. So in Europe, it's the other way. That's interesting. I don't know why. You can probably speculate, but I'm not going to bother. Um, here's something from The Week. I haven't read The Week this week. I wait for it to show up uh, physically. <clears throat> I got the digital version, but I I don't open my package before Christmas, you know, like when we were kids. But this is probably a little older, but the FDA approved emergency approval for new saliva-based COVID-19 test. Saliva Direct doesn't require nasal swabs. It's only $10. Results are on a par with nasal swabbing, but still need to be analyzed in a lab. The advantage is that it's easier to scale up because it doesn't require any proprietary equipment. 
providing this type of flexibility for processing saliva samples to test for COVID-19 is groundbreaking. Saliva Direct could help overwhelm labs. Um, it's a cheap alternative. If it can be implemented across the country, maybe we can get a handle on it. So where do you invest in Saliva Direct? I don't know. But that is something that we should look up and research. I think I saw... It was developed by researchers at Yale. So Nathan Grubauer is the guy to uh, call. And I am going to put that on my list of stuff to do. I don't know if Yale did it. I don't know who their commercial partner is, if any, but I'd like to know. So if we find that out, we'll let you know. And if you find that out, let us know. Um, Here's a potential buy, Callaway Golf. You know, golf turns out to be a pretty safe social activity. So um, Callaway bought an outfit called Top Golf. Now, I've actually, I used to work out in Wooddale, and right across Thorndale from our world headquarters was uh, one of these Top Golf places. So if you don't know what it is, I'll tell you. You go there. Uh, you get like, it's like a driving range, but combined with a bar. Uh, so you go there and you pound down beers and pound out golf balls. And, you know, <laughs> you always worry about guys falling off of it because it's like one of those triple deckers. But, you know, absent the liability exposure, it looks like fun. I, I've i never really done that part where you, you know, the Beers and balls, and but uh, bucket of beers, bucket of balls. I mean, the marketing stuff just rolls off my tongue to no avail. But um, and I don't think they emphasize that. You know, it's not like Marquette, <laughs> Marquette driving right. But uh, anyway, I I think that's interesting. You know, I, I I don't know where Callaway is compared to where it was. I'm sure it's run up because of the golf boom. Who knew? that golf might be saved by this stupid virus. So anyway, that's an idea. I'm not playing that, but it, it you could look at it as a COVID play, you know. Uh, the great outdoors, I saw some stats that said that, uh, and this was in The Economist, I think I actually put this out on the Alpha's Next LinkedIn page, the incidence of outdoor transmission is basically nil. So uh, that argues for why there was no big surge after they were all very concerned about the the virus riots, right, in May. Well, you never really saw that big surge. So it's pretty clear that the great outdoors is a great place to be and the great indoors is not. So unless you're wearing masks. you got to wear masks in, in the house. My wife thinks I'm nuts, but, you know, and, and we have proved that, you know, the mink story I talked about yesterday even little Fluffy uh, or Fido or Louie, when I'm with Louie, i got to wear the mask. So I'm still here. So you may think I'm crazy, but I'm still here. So um, in the biotech space, again, I've got a little note here about um, mRNA, obviously, and there's another stack. And, and wait a minute, skip that. We'll edit that out in post. Uh, 
Here's a note from Fast Money. Uh, there's a guy in there who catches a lot of grief from from Scott Wapner called the judge. And uh, he said that IHF, which is a healthcare ETF, had the best day since March. Now that presumes uh, that the next phase of healthcare reform is just the public option, which was supposed to be was originally proposed in 2010. So now here we are 10 years later, um, you know, and maybe we're going to get it. Well, that would not be bad at all for the industry. I mean, it's not great, but it's not Medicare for all. So that's that's why healthcare is bullish, because it looks like, you know, you're not going to, I, uh, Joe Biden's a, an Obamacare guy. Remember, he said it was a BFD back in the <laughs> on Mike. <laughs> and Joe's a character. So I think you know the good news about Joe being president is there'll still be a few laughs to be had from watching the president because he's he's got you know he's got the gaff thing going pretty good too. <laughs> so anyway, uh, here's. This is from the week, the November 6th edition, uh, which sounds like it's in a time machine, but, you know, they, and for some reason these publications date stuff out like a week or two ahead of their actual publication date. I don't know why. Um, so this is from the best book section from Robert Putnam, who wrote Bowling Alone and other State of the Nation tomes. And... He is, what they do is they ask authors what their uh, picks are for best books, and he picks a book by Robert Reich. And Robert, uh, one of the quotes I underlined here was from Teddy Roosevelt, the fundamental rule of our national life is that on the whole, in the long run, we shall go up or down together, which is very similar to Franklin's quote about hanging together or hanging separately. And... uh, You know, at this point, I think probably more down than up because the nation is so divided against itself. But, you know, that kind of puts the... When you press the gas and the brake at the same time, you stay where you are. So if the Senate breaks 50-50 or 51-49, preferably, we're hitting the gas and the brakes at the same time. Then there's a review... uh, they have a feature on celebrity wisdom, and they review Jerry Seinfeld's latest book, which is, Is This Anything? And the comment is that the message of Seinfeld's comedy has always been that life sucks. And I, I'm down with that, you know. So it's a little harder, they say, that, or he says, I think, it's it's hard to say that when you're an old rich guy. <laughs> but you know what? It still does. That's the thing people, people who've never had money don't realize that even if you have money, it's certainly better to have it than that, but life still sucks. You know? So you still get sick. COVID still screws you up. How to Write One Song by Jeff Tweedy. <clears throat> and Jeff Tweedy is the front man of Wilco. Now, I'm not a big Wilco fan, but he wrote a book. And um, basically, he advises you to write a song. So 
Go ahead and write it. Feel free to write a song. I have written uh, many songs, all of which are unpublished. One of which is a little ditty called If You Love Us, Don't Give Us the Virus. If you're Italian, Jewish, or Irish, and I forget the rest of the lyrics, but I think that would be a great anthem for like CDC or uh, the infectious disease folks. You know, if you love us, don't give us the virus. Don't come over for Thanksgiving. Don't hug us. Don't take us to the choir at church and super spread. If you love us, don't give us the virus. So anyway. Uh, Let's see here. Here's something that's maybe interesting to people who are in the marketing trade. I don't think there's anybody, well, listeners I know, that would just be me, but, you know, it's my podcast, more or less. Uh, Your next sales pitch might feature Snoop Dogg, uh, says Nat Ives in the Wall Street Journal. Cameo, company that helps hire celebrities to record custom videos for birthdays or other occasions. I think I might know this guy who runs this company. Uh, I think he may be a Chicago guy. If not, it's a very similar company. So you can hire like, uh, I suppose the price of the celebrity varies depending on their whether they're A, B, C, or Z list. Like you can hire me for you know, 20 bucks an hour. But uh, Alice Cooper, Rosie O'Donnell, ugh, man. Uh, so corporate, business to business, uh, there's a sales insight company, gong.io, uh, that hired Lindsay Lowen, and, uh, you know, she's pitching anything other than rehab, I don't know why you would want to use her, but, uh, they hired her to record a personalized message to an executive who attended a virtual conference that it hosted. The celebrities set their rates, which typically run around 60 bucks. But if you want one from Caitlyn Jenner, it'll cost you twenty five hundred. And I suppose if you want one from Kim Kardashian, it's like a million Kardashian. Uh, so that I'm actually going to save that into the litigation connection folder because uh, you know we help you connect with the folks that you want to be connected to. So uh, <clears throat> I am now doing business as the LinkedIn connection within the TLC which can also stand for tender, loving care because, you know, we take very great care in going out and finding the people that you want to be connected with who probably wouldn't mind being connected with you and connecting you with them and then uh, sending them some messages, which are free as far as LinkedIn is concerned. We charge like a buck a message. And then finally, we culminate by making an invite to do a Zoom meeting. So uh, that is working real well. And I am now broadening the front here outside of litigation. And when we do it outside of litigation, we're doing business as the LinkedIn connection until such time as LinkedIn, you know, sends us one of those cease and desist orders. But I don't think they will because, well, I don't know. But we'll see. But for the moment, you know, I'm doing it under the radar, and that would certainly include this podcast because, unfortunately... I'm not Joe Rogan, you know. So anyway, <clears throat> uh, moving right along. Now, this could be a stem winder. 
honestly, as we say. In fact, I think I got, well, I got maybe 30 minutes here. This could be a, an abrupt ender because I think somebody's going to call me for a conference call here pretty soon. But, uh, so if I get interrupted in mid-sentence, hey, we're just going to publish and be damned. So uh, here's a great uh, review, and this is just more or less in the intellectual curiosity. A Place for Everything, The Curious History of Alphabetical Order. Now, you know, alphabetical order used to determine who you sat next to in Catholic grammar school. So, you know, if you made friends for life in grammar school, then that may have changed your life. I think I sat next to David Lewis, you know, and that, boy, that <laughs> that was a bad influence, those of you who know David. But um, he's still living, by the way. So anyway, uh, the book argues by Judith Flanders, 30 bucks at Basic Books. The writing system uh, that uh, we call the alphabet was uniquely democratizing. It was invented 4,000 years ago in Western Egypt. And basically, it took you out of having to memorize thousands of hieroglyphs, which took a long time for us to figure out when the sand parted down to just 20 or 30. And that's that's true also of the Oriental, like Chinese. Uh, they don't call them hieroglyphs. I think they call it, I don't know what they call their characters. But, you know, it's very complicated. Their typewriters are like a half a block wide, right? So, uh, and it's all pictographs, basically. So it's more like looking at a series of paintings than it is our alphabet and of course then you get down to the digital era where it's just a one and a zero so everything is just two characters and boy that changes the world so um the alphabet facilitated the change from a worldview that saw reality as having intrinsic meaning with hierarchy as its underlying organizing principle to one that was essentially nominalist with the human mind inventing tools for organizing it usefully, so when you so the the the, uh, the hieroglyphic mentality or symbolic mentality is essentially a visual uh, literacy, and I'm a visual illiterate, so uh, look at it as like cartoon panels or you know icons, whereas the uh, the alphabetic view of the world is that you basically boil information down to symbols that have no visual uh, meaning. They're just symbolic and thus purely intellectual and virtual. So it's really the first virtualization. I never thought about any of this. So uh, dictionaries were slow to adapt alphabetical Alphabetization? Alphabetization? That doesn't sound right. Alphabetize. Alphabetization. I guess that's it. Uh, One-tenth century compendium of English words listed the objects named in descending order from the sacred angels to the profane weapons. So in other words, alphabetical order has no hierarchy. You know... Uh, Donald Trump would be right next to uh, 
you know, Joe Teeter. So they both have T, whereas a guy like Donald Trump would say, well, you know, I'm the most important guy, so I should sit in front. Well, he would be sitting him back. So, uh, and he's going to be sitting him back now. Well, and in the 19th century, Yale and Harvard listed their students not in alphabetical order, but by family, wealth, and social position. So it's kind of like in the old uh, old movies where everybody gets to buy a, 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 a pew and the richest people sit closest to the closest to God. So, uh, you know, that's very interesting, I thought. I hope you did, too. Big drop in COVID-19 death rates. And this is what I was alluding to earlier. Hospitalized COVID-19 patients are much less likely to die than those uh, in the early weeks of the pandemic. So, uh, let's see. Mortality dropped across all groups, even among seniors and those with underlying conditions like obesity. And we certainly saw with Chris Christie and Donald Trump these are two morbidly obese guys, and they went in and they got out. So your admitted patients had a 25.6% chance of dying early in the pandemic. Now it's down to 76 That's like a 75% improvement, I think. Uh, that's a sharp improvement, but the death rate is still far higher than for many other common infectious diseases, including the flu. Uh, in England, similar decline. So uh, this is kind of a clueless statement. Clearly, there's been something that's gone on that's improved the risk of individuals who go into these settings with COVID-19. Um, author Bilal Mateen from the Turing Institute. Healthcare workers have evidently got better at treating it, duh. And... Uh, <clears throat> Part of that is more sparing use of ventilators and how to react to the blood clots and the cytokine storms, immune overreactions. Increasing use of masks may be uh, shrinking the initial dose of virus. Uh, So it isn't just the treatment. They aren't as sick because they don't have as much virus, although I think Christie and Trump, you know, the other thing I think is you're you're basically getting exposed to low doses of it so that when you do get sick from it, uh, you know, your system has already developed some degree of immunity. That's just my own personal crackpot theory. It was a good article about controlling the Supreme Court in the week, which I'm not going to recap completely, but... Uh, recommended if you Google it on the week. Controlling the Supreme Court is the title of the article. You might be able to get access to it on the web. But, you know, a lot of this stuff, there was another article about the Electoral College I put out in the Alpha's Next website. But a lot of this stuff, you know, obviously there were no rules. You know, in 1787 when we they had the Constitutional Convention and Then 1789, the Judiciary Act was signed. Originally, there were six. uh, And then uh, the number popped around. But finally, the the number nine, which is a Beatles song, didn't uh, get 
finalized, I think, until 1869. So that's a pretty arbitrary number. And I do think that, I don't think Joe Biden is much of a court packer, but I think that it wouldn't surprise me at all if they get a, a Senate majority that they ram through a, a court packing deal and go to, you know, one justice for every circuit court or something like that and uh, put in whatever, how many, however many judges it takes to have a permanent Supreme Court majority. And that really takes the foot off the brake and the, that makes it a drag race to socialism if there's no court because then you don't even have to worry about constitutionality. I should say not that there's no court, but there's no uh, no conservative break on the court. Because that, that really changes the game. That and knock out the filibuster, and it's Katie bar the door. Let's see what else do we have here. There's an article about herd immunity or community immunity. Uh, Meadows, Mark Meadows, President's Chief of Staff, said that, and this, I think, was quoted out of context. He said, we're not going to control the virus. And those who wish the Trump administration ill (laughs) took that as waving the white flag, which I don't think is what he meant. I think what he meant is that it's impossible to control the pandemic um, the virus is going to do what it does, which is spread and infect, but rather focus on the search for vaccines, therapeutics, and other mitigations. So uh, what's the deal of that? The, the core of the strategy, if you look at it, is, and, and there's a woman named, I assume this is a woman, Faye Flam in Bloomberg, says the herd immunity approach is not surrender. It's unfair to call it that, but rather to encourage younger people to go on with life as usual while protecting those over 60. We are 1,000 times likelier to die of COVID than those who are under 30. So, you know, it's kind of like last night I was watching one of these old anti-drug, you know, uh, film strips they used to show us, and it talked about the effects of marijuana. And you know, not that I would know this personally, but obviously some of the effects were not accurate. And kids are going to try it; they're going to see that that's nonsense. But then it went into heroin. It talked about the evils of heroin, and that is true. So you know, if but if the first part doesn't doesn't resonate with reality, then they're not going to buy the second part either. So when you tell young people you can't go out because you're going to get sick and die, and then they don't, well, then they don't believe you. Now, the the better argument is if you go out, you might get it, and then if you go see Aunt Margaret, then she's going to get it and she's going to die. So, you know, the strategy, the herd immunity strategy is more or less, okay, let the kids go out and play, and some of them are going to die. You know, it's been very clear that, you know, there have been pediatric deaths, but uh, the it's the risk-reward, right? The risk of it is much lower. But uh, if you then say, okay, we're going we're gonna to draw a wall around the old people 
and let the young people go back to normal. That's not, you know, it may not be the best strategy, but it's it's reasonable. People can disagree about it. So we'll see what happens. Uh, here's an interesting one. How can you be truant if you don't have to show up at class? In California, uh, a middle school threatened to have a student arrested for missing three online classes. The kid is 12. He's a straight-A student, and he joined the sessions after roll call, so he was late, and they are going to throw him in jail. So, under state truancy law, I mean, geez, if we enforce that law in Chicago, 50% of the kids in the public schools would be in jail. A professor, here's another story. This is under the Only in America column. A professor from the University of Massachusetts says... Referring to famous composers by their last names is racist and sexist. Uh, writing in Slate, Chris White argues that using mono names for Mozart and Beethoven suggests that they are on a fi- different plane from suppressed non white, non male composers, and we need to full name all composers to not perpetuate oppression. So that would rule out like Prince and uh, Chade and uh, Snoop. Well, you know, this is the kind of nonsense that fuels the uh, conservative cause. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you're buying into that, you know, God bless you, but you're going to fit right in on the brave new world. So, uh, let's see. Here's from the editor's level letter. Uh, 55% of the voting age population cast ballots in 2016, which left the U.S. ranked 26 out of 32 developed democracies for voter participation. Well, I think we kind of fixed that. If, you know, if you're a fan of turnout, I think you got to give Trump credit for driving a lot of turnout, especially... Democratic turnout. Okay, so here, this is kind of dated. Trump needs a miracle. This is before the election, obviously. Trump needs a miracle to pull this out, but it's not impossible, according to Richard Patterson from the Bulwark. Uh, Biden could see a fall off in Latin, Latino support in Florida, Arizona, and North Carolina, which I think happened. Uh, Republicans have a big edge on the ground game. Biden's inartful debate pledge to wean us off oil, which he made the ultimate political faux pas, which is speaking the truth, may undermine Pennsylvania. Uh, (laughs) This is a funny line. If Trump pulls off an upset, said Rich Lowry in the National Review, it'll be because he's the only middle finger available to Americans sick of the woke left. Uh... Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart Soto Voce. Uh, Nobody cares about Trump's barely sketched out second term agenda, that's for sure. But after months of statues toppling, cancel culture run amok, and woke virtue signaling, Americans see a vote for Trump as the only way to strike back at the media, Hollywood academia, and coastal elites, which is absolutely spot on. And that's why the polls don't reflect reality because, you know, in a woke world, you just have to keep your head down and your mouth shut if you don't, 
either give lip service to this new regime or if you don't agree with it, you know, either on an emotional or intellectual level or both, particularly. So, in this fight, this is the last word, and this will probably be my last word. I don't know, I might have got one more. This is a column, and this is kind of like a synopsis, I think, by Mark Fisher of the Washington Post, an election with forebodings of doom. And the picture here I should probably put out someplace. Uh, It shows supporters of President Trump firing cannons at a Sandusky, Ohio boat rally, and there's some guy in like a tri-corner hat. (laughs) Like he's the admiral, you know, he's got epaulets and... So these are some pretty, you know, it's a democracy. Everybody gets to vote. But Trump attracts some of the most interesting people. But uh, what I highlighted here out of two pages was like four paragraphs. We've become a stratified culture. There's no longer one truth. Boy, is that for sure. Now, that's probably been the case for, you know, at least since 1917, once the Russian Revolution took hold. Um, new technologies are threatening the future of work. I think that plays into the socialist momentum. You know, there's really not that much work to do anymore. Like, I, I often quote the stat that in 1900, 50% of Americans were engaged in agriculture, and a lot of that was small farms where people were just feeding themselves and didn't have much left over to sell. Um, now, 1%. So... You know, technological advances, uh, ag, agri- ag tech, although it's very controversial. It's amazing. I remember when, uh, what's his face, Paul Ehrlich, was it, said we were going to starve to death if we had more than a billion people or two billion people. Now we got seven billion. Everybody's eating. Not everybody, but most people. Then they talk about Trump seeing himself as a disruptor. The soul of the nation gets forged in the collision of ideas about race, about money, and capitalism, about the individual versus the collective. And that's a quote from uh, a guy named Singer, who's not the author. It's one of the things I hate about these articles. You have to go back a thousand paragraphs to figure out who they're quoting. The psychiatrist, Singer, Thomas Singer, a psychiatrist in San Francisco. And as they say, the psychiatrists are nuttier than the than the patients. But he says things were falling apart. Uh, our inner experience as individuals and left or right is that something's very damaged about America. Uh, and he kind of seizes on the, the metaphor of Planet of the Apes when... Charlton Heston discovers the uh, the Statue of uh, Liberty and realizes that his world has destroyed itself. So that quote, the soul of the nation gets forged in that collision of ideas is from a psychiatrist named Singer uh, from San Francisco. Let's see. Singer believes a second Trump term would be a disaster but he wonders if the president may have forced the country to confront and maybe resolve some of its deeper problems. 
And I think what Trump has shown a lot of folks in this country is that this country isn't what they either thought it would be or would like it to be. And so they have to deal with that reality. Uh, Ultimately, Trump, he says, may serve a valuable purpose and human experience, death and rebirth go together. So it's kind of like thesis synthesis, uh, or thesis antithesis synthesis, you know, which is Marxian logic or Marxian doctrine. But, you know, there's some truth to it. Unfortunately, we must note the passing of Jerry Jeff Walker. If you're my age, you have to know that um, it's kind of like the party is ending and people are leaving and heading home. And Jerry Jeff went home uh, last week at the age of, uh, let's see, 58, 78, which if you're Jerry Jeff Walker is a pretty good accomplishment. Um, Jerry Jeff was a functional alcoholic who said in his 1999 memoir, I didn't just burn the candle at both ends, I was also finding new ends to light. And another quote said, Texas was the only place where they didn't look at me like I was crazy. So uh, he wrote Mr. Bojangles, a a ballad about a man he met in a New Orleans drunk tank. Um, Nitty Gritty Dirt Band made that a hit. And I don't know... I have a friend who would be better suited to talk about Jerry Jeff's body of work. And here we see that uh, Trump is not conceding, which is no surprise. Going to count all those ballots. Going to recount them and recount them until they come out right, as all losers want to do. Now here's some quotes with wisdom every week. A neurosis is a secret you don't know you're keeping, says Kenneth Tynan, who's a critic. Chance favors the prepared mind, said Louis Pasteur. So we try to prepare your minds on this uh, on this podcast, and our own, you know. I mean, if nobody else listens to me, I do. There are lots of ways of being miserable, but there's only one way of being comfortable, and that is to stop running around after happiness. I I certainly believe that. Edith Wharton said that. And uh, I'm just shooting for content. An old friend of mine just died, and his motto was, always have a moderate time. And that's what I like to do. Another quote here by Emlyn Williams. Anyone can squander money and anyone can hoard it, but the most difficult thing in the world is to know how to spend it. And those of us at the litigation connection can tell you how to spend your marketing money. You know, television is an invention that permits you to be entertained in your living room by people you wouldn't have in your home. And I would say that's David Frost, father of Wilfred Frost and of CNBC, who I really like. And the same is true of social media. I mean, I've had people cancel me and call me a racist. I, I, don't, I never met them. I don't know them. You know, perfect strangers that wouldn't, neither one of us would have each other over to their house. Uh, but here we are, you know, hurling uh, insults at each other over Facebook. It's great. 
Poll Watch, 61% of adults now say they know someone who has had COVID-19, up from 10% in late March, 41% in mid-July.